Let's start with a quick word of prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God be in our minds and in our understandings. God be in our eyes and in our looking. God be in our mouths and in our speaking. God be in our hearts and in our thinking. God be at our end and at our departing. Amen. Okay, so the basic way that today is going to go is uh, now that we've had morning prayer and we've had time to get some refreshments, we're going to do our first session where we're going to talk about fasting. Um, At the end of that, right around maybe 10.15, we'll take a short five-minute break. You can go eat some more donuts because I, uh, I don't I don't want to take any home, uh, or maybe just a couple home for Jude and Rowan, but uh, I don't want to take a bunch home. Um, And like I said, we're talking about fasting today. We're not practicing it yet. Uh, St. Augustine said, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. (laughs) 10.20 to 11, we'll do our second session, which is going to be about self-examination. And then at the end of that, we'll have another five-minute break. And then about 11.05, we'll do our third session, which is about the sacrament of confession, Um, And that will end at about 11.45. At that point, uh, we'll take about 15 minutes break and we will uh, prepare and we'll actually do a mass um, at 12 o'clock. Now, the mass is what's called a votive mass. A votive mass is a mass with a special intention. Uh, It's not necessarily tied to a particular feast day. So typically we do masses on feast days. Um, So you do a mass for St. Matthias, for example, this past week. Uh, But a votive mass has a special intention, and the special intention of the mass that we're going to be using today is for the propagation of the Holy Gospel. Um, And um, I think it dovetails kind of well with our themes today. Um, And so you'll see a little bit more about that uh, as we get closer to it. So uh, before we begin uh, talking about, and I'm sorry if the PowerPoint is too small to really read all of it. I, I was playing around with it last night, and yesterday I was up here for a while trying to uh, figure out the best way to get the projector to work. And I think we did the best we could, but I don't know that the best is good enough. <laughs> but I want us to, uh, to frame our day before we start about talking about any particular discipline. And to do that, I'm going to draw from a book, and that book is called um, Faith Speaking Understanding, Performing the Drama of Doctrine by a scholar and uh, Reformed theologian named Kevin Van Hooser. I certainly don't agree with Kevin Van Hooser on everything, but he is very intelligent, and I think this book is really helpful for us. What he argues in the book is that doctrine is intricately related to practice. Doctrine is intricately related to practice. Or, to put it more simply, what we believe... And how we behave are intimately connected to each other and inform each other. And it doesn't just go from one to the other. It doesn't just go from belief to action, but how we behave also informs what it is we believe. So they're both on a kind of feedback loop or a cycle, which is why if we engage in all sorts of bad behavior, I think probably our doctrine will suffer, Um, whereas if we engage in good and virtuous behavior, it should help us uh, think about doctrine more critically. What this all means is that if we want to be good disciples of our Lord, and I assume that we do if we woke up this early on a Saturday morning to come here, then we will not only work on practicing our faith, but we'll also have to delve into the theology of our faith. So, To better illustrate his point, 
Kevin Van Hooser employs the analogy of the theater. Unless it's something bizarrely experimental, theater is what it is because the acting troupe that is performing shares a common script. And that script tells them what they should say, and it provides directions for them about how they should move. Yet the beauty of theater, if you like theater, uh, is that you can perform the same show with different interpretations of those words and stage directions, and you can have different actors. So it's the same story, but it's going to be performed slightly differently each time you see it. And that means that theater is really a unique experience. It's not like watching a movie, which is always the same performance over and over again. There's a sort of a more human element to the theater that makes it exciting. This analogy of the theater becomes a way for us to understand the life of disciples in the church. The church is like a company of actors in that we who are Christians come together so that we can rehearse the drama of redemption together. And what is that drama? Some theologians argue about how exactly it's structured, but for our purposes, I think we can say that the drama of redemption includes creation, the fall, and redemption. And if you pay very close attention to the liturgy, all three of those components are a part of what we do every Sunday. So there are different ways that we as Christians can gather together to rehearse this story. The first way is through Bible study, which is kind of like a table read where the actors gather around and they read the script and they learn the story and they learn their parts and they get a better view for what they're doing in the show. The homily every week is kind of like a storyboarding of the gospel so that we can see the big picture and the flow of the narrative. The church calendar, which we should immerse ourselves in as Anglicans, is like the training that actors have to undergo to play a part. So sometimes that involves for actors a, a a lot of physical work, right? Christian Bale in the movie The Machinist had to lose 62 pounds to play his character. He looked like skin and bones. And you can also think of all the superhero films that have come out in the past few years where actors have to basically train like professional athletes in order to achieve the physique that it is that they want. Even outside of more physical roles, actors often engage in something like method acting where they literally immerse themselves in their character so that they become who it is that they're portraying. So by living into the rhythm and pattern of the Christian calendar, I would argue that we better prepare ourselves for the role of playing the disciples by training our bodies through the fasting and feasting cycles of the calendar and by studying other Christians through the various feast days, the saints, and how they played their parts in this divine drama. Of course, the liturgy of the mass is probably our most important and serious dress rehearsal. And of course, we should caveat this by saying the Mass and the heavenly reality that the Mass participates in are not just rehearsals. They're very real, but rehearsal is a good word for it because what we do here on Sunday mornings is something that we should take out into the world uh, as we leave the doors. We should take the the heart of the Eucharist, the, the leaving ourselves on the altar as a sacrifice and the receiving of Christ, us in Christ, he in us. We should take that out into the world and it should transform and transfigure all of our relationships and our vocations and everything that we do. 
And of course, we should say too, the mass is, uh, transports us to heaven. So it's not just a rehearsal in that it's, um, in that it's uh, a fake, it's real. Uh, a good performance transports you, right? If you're in the audience, and even as an actor, it can transport you to the place uh, that, that in the world of the show. So when we participate in the mass, we are transported to heaven where Christ is continually offering himself to the Father, while also the cross is transported into our present moment so that we encounter it. Um, this is why the ceiling over the uh, sanctuary is blue, by the way. It's a reminder that during the Mass, we ascend to heaven. Um, we're not here on earth anymore. Another way that we rehearse is through the spiritual disciplines. And this is going to be the heart of what we talk about today. Um, so a few weeks ago on Septuagesma Sunday, our reading for the epistle was from 1 Corinthians nine twenty four to 27, in which Paul compares the Christian life to that of an athlete. And of course, to be an athlete, you have to wake up early. You have to go to the gym constantly. You have to watch what you eat. You have to practice uh, your, your sport, your athletic event. Um, and so as Christians, we can learn from that kind of pattern of behavior uh, that professional athletes exhibit. And we do that through practicing spiritual disciplines. And there are, of course, a variety of spiritual disciplines. Some of them are things that we really should try and practice regularly. Uh, I would argue that self-examination and confession are things that are appropriate for Lent, but should be something that we practice all year round. Whereas something like fasting is, uh, is so we can do it all year, but it's, it's particularly appropriate for Lent. So some of our disciplines are conditioned by the seasons and other disciplines we should just try to make a part of our lives as best as we can. So as we're about to enter Lent this week on Ash Wednesday, I think it would help us to focus our day on three particular disciplines, fasting, examination, and confession. Um, and as we walk through these disciplines today, I want us to keep in mind the metaphor of theater to be the framework for which we understand these disciplines. Um, and of course, I think it's important for us to, uh, at the beginning, just say that we should have the right perspective on spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are not things that we do in order to get God to love us more. If I just fast a little bit harder, then maybe God will really love me. You know, that's not the right way to think about these. Rather, disciplines are the way that we train ourselves to play the part in which we have been cast so that when we are out in the world, we can become that part that we're supposed to play. And above all, uh, playing our part is only possible through a life of prayer. So we should always default to praying uh, about what we're doing with the spiritual disciplines. Okay, so that's kind of our framework for today, but now I want to talk a little bit about fasting, unless anybody has any questions about what we've talked about so far. No questions. Okay, no news is good news, I guess. Do what? I said just say the whole thing again. The whole thing again. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think you want that. Okay, so fasting, um, you, as Christians, if you've ever spent any time in the scriptures, fasting probably comes up. Um, basically, how we could define fasting is the intentional avoidance of food. The intentional avoidance of food. Now, the church calendar is structured in cycles of fasting and feasting. So before we have feasts like Easter or Christmas, we have seasons of fasting. 
And if you look at the Ordo calendar, which is downstairs in the office, and if you're ever interested in getting one, we can make sure that you do. Just let Jan know. If you look at feast days, so St. Matthias was on Thursday. The Wednesday night before the Feast of St. Matthias is what's called the Vigil of St. Matthias. And that's actually a time of fasting and penance as well to prepare us for the feast the next day. Now, since the Feast of St. Matthias is not a, a, a major season, it's just one day, the, the fasting vigil is not really very long. Uh, whereas when we get ready for a big celebration, a big blowout like Easter, we fast for the 40 days as a way of preparing so in Liturgy for Living by uh, Charles Price and Louis Vale, they say that every unit of time is an occasion for meeting God, so that every time is a time to observe, celebrate, and participate in the great mystery. So you can think about our Christian calendar, which is primarily laid out in the Book of Common Prayer, but supplemented through other texts like the Anglican Missal and the Ordo Calendar, Um, You can think about those things as like a gem that has multiple facets. And so as you hold it to the light and you turn the gem, it refracts differently. Um, And so the church calendar does this with the sacrificial life of our Lord. So you can think about that, right? During Advent and during Christmas, we're focusing on the incarnation, the coming into the world of our Lord. Whereas during Lent and during, um, during Easter, we're thinking about the death and resurrection of our Lord. Um, and then we think about uh, the, the, uh, the ascension of our Lord after that and then the Feast of Pentecost. So we're, we're, we kind of go through his life every year um, as a cycle. Um, and we get to encounter and focus on different aspects of that life. My friend, Father Miles Hickson, um, who is a priest at one of our churches in Knoxville, Tennessee, He pointed out to me that the Book of Common Prayer actually walks us through this kind of pattern every day. So if you really read the text of morning prayer, it focuses on the idea of resurrection and newness of life. Noon prayer emphasizes the death of our Lord because he was thought to die at noon. And then evening prayer and Compline stress death and rest. Um, So we walk through that every day if we're doing the daily offices, which is kind of cool. But then our calendar zooms out or zooms in at different times so that we get better angles. So we see that we have to fast before we feast in the church calendar. And I think this is really important. Um, It's important because uh, it, it trains our appetites when we fast. But also the calendar allows us to indulge in God's good creation. So this helps us avoid two extremes. The first extreme it safeguards against is the disdain of nature because it reminds us that the material world is God's creation and is therefore good. It's good to enjoy a nice steak dinner and to have a nice bottle of wine um, and, you know, to have a really nice salad or something like that. Those are good things and we should be able to enjoy them. But we also have to safeguard against the equal and opposite error, which is hedonism, where we lapse into a kind of gluttony. So if we have to have a nice steak dinner and a bottle of wine every night, well, then it's not really enjoyable anymore. Uh, We're kind of addicted to it. Uh, It controls us in ways that are not good. So the calendar teaches us a kind of um, moderation, Or like the author of Ecclesiastes would say, it teaches us that there is a time to feast and a time to fast. 
Um, and so we get to, uh, by building up self-discipline and self-control, we can better enjoy the fasting or the feasting when it comes because we have appreciated it through fasting. Of course, given that we're about to start Lent, our main focus for today is going to be fasting, which is uh, primarily practiced in the church calendar during Advent and Lent, though primarily Lent. Um, and you can start during the Jesima Sundays. You can start during the pre-Lenten season, which we've been in the past three weeks, uh, but not many people do, because why would you, uh, why would you want to? <laughs> But it's a good time to practice, perhaps, would be a good way to describe it. It's hard sometimes to jump straight into fasting. Um, so if you begin during the pre-Lenten season to lessen, then that can be kind of helpful. So the current standard for fasting, and there is a handout in the back on kind of a thinner strip, uh, like a half page of paper, um, and it's about fasting. What does that mean? What does that look like for you on a daily basis? The current standard in the Western church, so Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Lutheranism, etc., we all kind of share a common uh, understanding of fasting, whereas if you ever were to become Eastern Orthodox, their uh, fasting is a lot more intense. Uh, you basically become a vegan all of uh, Lent. Uh, we don't do that. We, we're vegan on like a couple days during Lent, basically. <laughs> um, so, so the standard that we have is that on days of fasting— we eat one full meal and two small snacks during the day. One full meal and two small snacks. This is the goal of every day during Lent, except for Sundays, which are feast days, and other major feast days. So some often uh, St. Patrick's uh, falls during Lent. Well, that's a, a nice day to break the fast, um, especially if you like green beer. So, uh, so Fridays throughout the year, but especially Fridays during Lent, are known as days of abstinence. Also, Ash Wednesday is a day of abstinence. Abstinence uh, doesn't mean what you think. Um, it, actually means, uh, it actually means the avoidance of meat. Fish is allowed on Fridays, but not meat, not, uh, not chicken, not steak, uh, not, no burgers, that kind of stuff. We avoid that. Uh, this is why McDonald's and other fast food restaurants have fish filet sandwiches. They didn't want to lose the business of all the good Catholics. Um, and so they, they offer the fish filet and um, usually some kind of other alternatives as well. So that handout should be a quick guide. Is today a fast day or a feast or, or an abstinence day or, or what's going on? Um, and you can, you can check that out on the, on the handout. Typically, by the way, alcohol is not expressly forbidden during Lent. However, it does kind of defeat the purpose of it. Um, so we have to be a little bit judicious about that. And of course, you know, with fasting too, I, I, remember, um, I remember hearing a story about a, a, a recent Orthodox convert who invited his priest over during Lent and they had made this really big uh, like steak dinner. And, you know, it's supposed to be a season of fasting and the priest knows this immediately as soon as he walks in the door. But he ate the dinner with the guy and then later uh, gave him some literature about the fasting practices of the Orthodox Church. Um, so we don't, need to be, uh, we don't need to be jerks about it, uh, is what I'm saying. Um, so if you go to someone's house for dinner and they've cooked, you know, burger, they're grilling burgers, uh, that's not really the time to uh, say, well, I am fasting and so I will not be participating in your burger uh, meal. Is that why we ate the donuts before you gave us the sheet? Exactly. That's why you ate the donuts before I gave you the sheet. Exactly. 
but yes, so, um, so, you know, some wisdom in exercising these things. Um, and also it should be said too, and I think the sheet says this, there are people who can't fast with food. Uh, and so what happens in those situations is um, either they should just be excused from it or they can talk to their priest or spiritual director about what they could give up instead. Um, so like if you're a professional athlete, for example, you probably don't want to be fasting during Lent if you're in the middle of a season. Um, if you're a manual laborer, you know, you can't fast and do your job. Um, so, or if you're sick or if you're elderly, you know, the, these kind of instances, you, you can get dispensations. Um, but it is good if you can to give something up in, in place that you'll miss. So, um, why, well, is there sort of biblical evidence for fasting? Um, I think that there are, is plenty. If we begin with the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 4, we see our Lord fast for 40 days in the wilderness. This is what the 40 days of Lent are based on is the fact that he fasted for 40 days. And so we fast for 40 days as we lead up to his, uh, his passion and his death. So if we want to be like our Lord and we should want to be like our Lord, then fasting is something that we should do because he did it. Further, if you turn to Matthew chapter six, verses 16 to 18, Jesus gives the command to his disciples that they shouldn't be like hypocrites when they fast. They shouldn't look somber while they're fasting. They shouldn't uh, kind of go out of their way to make everybody realize that they're fasting. Um, but rather, he says, you should try and you know, wash your face and look nice while you're fasting so that nobody knows that you're doing it. Um, and so I think he's assuming in the directions that he gives them that fasting will be a normal practice for them. It's kind of expected that they would do it. And then finally, um, in Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 2 to 3, we see that the early Christians did adopt the practice of fasting. So as they ministered the Lord, to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So obviously this is before some sort of ordination of Paul and leading up to that, there is plenty of prayer and fasting, which is always a good thing if you're going to be ordained. You need all the help you can get. So why fast? What's the point? Uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the underlying reasons for it, but I think uh, we can ask the question, how does, how does fasting get us into character? The first thing to point out is that fasting is an act of self-sacrifice, albeit a small one, but Every sacrifice that we make and unite to our Lord's suffering is a significant sacrifice. And by doing that, it teaches us to abdicate our self-will so that we can give ourselves more fully to God. So uh, the parable of the talents, uh, the, the one servant is told, he who's faithful in much is given much, and he who's faithful in little is given little, um, and so the idea there is even in the little things, we want to be faithful. So, fa- I mean, is it really a huge sacrifice for us to give up, you know, major, two major meals a day? Not really. Um, I mean, sometimes it's annoying and, and frustrating, but it's not a huge, uh, huge sacrifice. But it is significant um, in that if we do it for the right reasons, we're uniting it to the suffering of our Lord. 
Another advantage to uh, fasting is that it helps us control our passions by instilling in us a healthy detachment from the material that helps us be more free. So you've probably heard someone say about anything, whether it's uh, eating at a, at, a, at a buffet or drinking or smoking, well, I could stop whenever I want. Well, here's your opportunity. <laughs> now is a good time to stop when you want. And so we, uh, we should detach ourselves from these material things, which paradoxically helps us appreciate them more. If every night I have a really nice steak and it becomes the norm for me, well, then I'm not going to appreciate on my birthday when I get a really nice steak. It's just going to be like every other meal, right? And as individuals, individualists and consumerists, it's sometimes hard for us as modern Americans to comprehend how giving something up can actually make us more free. But it's helpful, I think, to remember that true freedom, at least freedom in the scriptures, is not doing whatever it is that we want, and it's not picking from unlimited options. True freedom is not growing, going to the grocery store and having 30 different kinds of bread to choose from. It's just not. Um, what freedom is in the Bible is obedience to God. We are most free when we're servants of him. Um, and so that means, uh, kind of, again, ironically or paradoxically, giving up our self-will is where we find the most freedom. So if our passions and our appetites are allowed to run amok, well, then we become enslaved by them. Because what God created to be good has now taken a place in our lives that is no longer good or prevents it from being good. And so, like Paul says of some of his opponents in Philippians 3.19, if we allow those appetites to run amok, then our God is our belly. So the goal of all of our spiritual disciplines and, the, um, and really the Christian life as a whole is what we might call the reintegration of the person. So a lot of the early church fathers and the medieval theologians um, saw that in creation, Adam and Eve possessed a special kind of love for God in that it wasn't divided amongst a million other things. It was a unified love that was really um, uh, possessive of them in a way that, that it's hard for us to even imagine as fallen creatures. Sin, of course, shattered that love into fragments so that the human heart is now divided into as many different channels as objects that it loves. And this is why idolatry is such an ever-present danger for us. It's because our loves are so divided that we can often feed loves of love of things too much to where they become our kind of God. And of course, in America, our idolatry is not the worship of uh, you know, Zeus or, or, or Marduk or something like that. It's, it's basically a kind of consumerism or individualism. So the goal of the Christian life then is to be restored, to be reintegrated, to, uh, to, to recover or piece back together that love that we have into a singular love for God. So according to, um, to Anglican priest and theologian Martin Thornton in his classic work, um, English Spirituality, the whole purpose of mortification, fasting, almsgiving, almsgiving and discipline is to replace concupiscence, by which is a fancy word for our disordered desires, 
by tranquillitas, the Latin word for tranquility or stability or peace, to reestablish harmony with people, creation, and God. One more time, the whole purpose of mortification, fasting, almsgiving, and discipline is to replace concupiscence by tranquillitas, to reestablish harmony with people, creation, and God. A final benefit, whoops. A final benefit of fasting is that in freeing us from the tyranny of the passions and the appetites, we are then enabled to do what is good. So we're purged of what's bad and we can then fill that with what's good. So being liberated from the death grip of those disordered desires frees us to embrace all sorts of things. So there's purging and there's filling. We purge what's evil and bad and we fill up with what is good. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things, Paul says in Philippians 4 verses 8 through 9. So what are we free to focus on? Well, prayer, scripture, the Eucharist, almsgiving, etc. We can focus on the spiritual instead of the physical and temporal. So it might be helpful as we're approaching the beginning of Lent, think about something that you want to develop. Do you want to read the Bible more? Do you want to pray more? And then figure out ways that now that you have a more free time because you're not sitting down for three meals a day, figure out ways that you can fill your day more with those things that you want to develop. You want to read the Bible more? Well, maybe, uh, maybe in the morning when you wake up, instead of making a nice big breakfast, uh, you sit down and you read a, a passage of scripture or you read the daily readings for the day in the prayer book or something like that. And of course, I think it's important for us to remember, again, Material things are not evil in and of themselves, but the attachment that we form to those things often can be. Because when we attach ourselves too closely to something material, it makes us beholden to them. So we see this sometimes with Jude, who has a very one-track mind. I don't know where he got that from. Um, But he is obsessed with hockey right now. And there are days where he literally cannot shut up about hockey. It's constant. It is all day. And so we have to say, Jude, let's, we have to step back. You know, we're not going to watch hockey for a couple days because you're a little bit too into it, you know. Um, but the thing is, Jude's tendency is not, uh, doesn't just go away, I think. I mean, I, it's, it's something that all of us probably struggle with in, in different ways um, where we get too attached to things and then we become beholden to them. Um, and so then we center our lives when we get too attached, not around spiritual practices that benefit us, but around things that aren't really inherently edifying. Um, so it's not wrong to watch a hockey game, right? I mean, I love to watch a hockey game, especially if you're watching the Carolina Hurricanes. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but, you know, again, we can, we can elevate that too high. We can become too attached to it, and that's not good. So fasting is one discipline along with many others that has a goal, um, as Martin Thornton says, to dispose the soul to receive the motions of the Holy Ghost by cooperation with grace. According to St. Basil the Great, a church father who lived from 330 to 379, fasting is a good safeguard for the soul, a steadfast companion for the body, 
a weapon for the valiant, and a gymnasium for athletes. Fasting repels temptations, anoints unto piety. It is the comrade of watchfulness and the artificer of chastity. In war it fights bravely, and in peace it teaches stillness. So some practical tips about fasting as we draw our first session to a little bit of a close. The first thing to remember is that fasting is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be a challenge. It's not supposed to be easy or else it wouldn't be worth doing. It wouldn't be called a discipline. The second thing is that there will be days where you probably will mess up. You'll eat two big meals or you'll forget that it's a Friday and you'll order a hot dog. Um, And when that happens, it's important not to get bogged down in guilt or get too frustrated. Uh, Don't quit. Just try again. Uh, like the uh, like the psalmist says, or actually, I think it's in Lamentations, uh, which is an interesting book. Um, his mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. So just because one day you might eat a little too much uh, when you're trying to fast, you you can always try again the next day. Um, and important, actually, in the failure, you can learn an important lesson about your dependence on God. Uh, no pun intended, but uh, don't bite off more than you can chew with fasting. So uh, sometimes people read the fasting requirements, one meal a day plus the two small meals, and they go, man, that's nothing. You know, the Orthodox are over there doing, uh, basically being vegan. Um, You know, you've got Elijah in the scriptures who it seems like he doesn't really eat anything at all uh, for 40 days. It seems like Jesus doesn't really eat anything. I mean, he doesn't have one big meal and then two snacks. He's just not eating for 40 days. Um, So maybe I should try that, you know. Well, maybe don't. (laughs) especially at first, uh, just go with what the church says you should do, uh, your one meal and two small snacks, um, at least at first. And, you know, you can always do more. You can do more if you want to, um, but work your way up to it. Don't just, don't, don't set out with unrealistic expectations. Of course, it's also important to remember, too, that how fasting, a per, how fasting affects a person will be, vary based on a plethora of factors. It'll be, I mean, your, your health situation, your genetics, um, all those things will, will impact how this works. So it may be more beneficial for you to work your way up to a goal. Okay, I'm going to fast uh, one meal a day, and I'm going to have two regular meals a day. Um, at first for a week. And then I'll try maybe the next week to, to do one meal and two snacks. Um, but what, however you need to, to work it out, you, you know your body and you know yourself. Another uh, helpful tip is to use juice and smoothies. Use juice and smoothies um, because that's a good way of getting nutrients um, without eating a meal. Um, so juice and smoothies are always a good things to, to have around when you're trying to fast. Um, and of course, hot drinks too, because hot drinks will help you feel like you're, you're full sometimes, even if even if you're not. Another thing um, that might be helpful if if you're interested in, in fasting is to meal plan ahead of time. So if you have a plan for the week, it's a lot easier to stick to it than it's Friday. We're all tired. Uh, let's just go get some Chick Fil A or McDonald's because it's easy to do that. Um, if you have a meal plan uh, for the week, uh, then that really can can help you. And it also helps too, at least in my uh, in my case, because I'm my my problem has always been late night snacking. I stay up a little bit later so I can get some work done, and then I realize, oh, I'm a little bit hungry. So then I go get out, you know, 
food that's not great for you or alcohol and I start eating and drinking and then, you know, it's, it's one o'clock in the morning and I've had a whole other meal. Um, and that's not good. So what it, it helps to do is sometimes just get rid of the fatty foods in your house, um, get rid of the alcohol. Um, that's what Shrove Tuesday's for, right? We, uh, that's the whole point is we have our, you use all the fat in your pantry um, so that you don't have it in the house. Um, and then finally, the, the most important tip is to pray. Pray when you feel weak. When you're tempted to eat a big juicy hamburger from Wendy's, pray. Pray, pray, pray. The whole thing should be filled with prayer um, because that really is the point. Um, is that, that it frees us to pray. So if we're trying to fast and we're not praying, then we've kind of missed the whole point. It would be better for us to struggle with it and pray and maybe even do less than is required of us and pray than to do all of the, check all the boxes and not live a life of prayer. So uh, that comes to the, about the end of our first session. Are there any um, questions about fasting uh, at this point? No, fasting and abstinence are not the same. Uh, so fasting is when you reduce your intake of food, and that's required, not required. That's the ideal for every day during Lent that's not a special feast day or a Sunday. So every day, one meal, one regular meal, and two small snacks. Abstinence is a, you can think of it as going further in devotion, and you only do it on Fridays during, well, you can do it during Fridays during the whole year, especially Fridays during Lent and Ash Wednesday. Uh, Fridays are important because of Good Friday, the day our Lord died. Um, and so it's a special day of fasting and abstinence. And that means, so abstinence has more to do with what you're eating rather than how much you're eating. It's, it's refusing to eat meat. And that only is required, well, again, I don't like the word required. That only is uh, expected on Fridays and Ash Wednesday. Does that make sense? So that's the key. Yes, yes. Which is always the hardest day for me out of all the days. It's like, I could probably do it on a Tuesday, but Friday it's like, you know, we're like, you know, Nice, you're starting the weekend, and uh, it would be nice to get a burger or something, you know, but, um, but that's what makes it fasting and abstinence, isn't it? Yes? Um, so the idea of a full meal and two small snacks, snacks for me are cookies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that's quite what I mean. Right. Yeah, so what do we mean by snacks? Good question. Nobody really defines it too well. Maybe they do that on purpose. <laughs> But I think, I mean, I think it's kind of subjective, you know, I mean, I think, um, I think probably you're right, cookies are not the best snack on a fast day, but something uh, akin to a cookie as far as size, so like a cereal bar or a, um, or some crackers and cheese or something like that, or, um, or if it's not a Friday, you could even do like, um, like, you know, uh, maybe some small lunch meat and a, and a, um, pickle or something like that, you know. So it, it kind of, it will vary depending on the person, I think, as far as what that, what that means exactly. Um, and I kind of like that a little bit. I mean, I think that it's important. And one of the geniuses of, of the Anglican spiritual tradition is that there is a little bit of flexibility for the individual to exercise wisdom. 
So I think, I mean, sometimes that's frustrating and, and it puts the impetus on us, the, the person, rather than the institution to lay it all out for us. But I think that makes it a really humanizing thing. So any other, uh, any other questions? That was a good question. Okay, well, let's take a, um, a five-minute break then, um, and we will get back here at around 1025-ish um, so that we can talk about the discipline of self-examination. <laughs>